0: Pray all this today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. If you have your Bible this morning, if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to be looking through what we've been going through the last couple weeks, which is the series, the mini-series we're in the holiday season as we're breaking from Revelation called Foretold, Foretold. Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis three fifteen, the first gospel, the uh, proto I can never get the words out. The first gospel that God would send forth His Son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent, that being Satan himself. Last week, we looked at those great words from Isaiah chapter seven and verse fourteen, that there would be with us a uh, a Son that would come. There would be Emmanuel. There would be a baby born, and and we looked at the context around that, and it had some historical significance, but really the main thrust of the passage, the far prophecy, was that one would come, and we know his name is Jesus. Today, we're going to look at probably the most popular, probably the most well-known instance of the prophecies of the coming of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. There are four main titles we know, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. But today, we're going to stretch that out to seven and make it a perfect number just because we can. And we're going to do that this morning. I want to look at Isaiah 9, 6-7, foretold. He is the heir of the coming promises is Jesus. If you're able to stand this morning, would you stand with me as we read through Isaiah chapter 9. We're actually going to start in verse 1 for context, but read down to verse 7. This is God's Word. And may he be blessed as we read through it together. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use the pew Bible in front of you. And uh, uh, that is something that is available to you. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, "'But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations.' The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them has light shined. You, verse 3, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they glad, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 4, verse 4, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here are the verses we know well, especially this time of year. For unto us is born a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of, verse 7 says, the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. May the zeal of the Lord of hosts do this thing. Will you bow your head with me this morning? Let's go before our Lord as we study these words today. Thank you for being here. Father, may you bless the reading of your word. May you bless the hearing of your word, and Father, especially uh, also, Lord, just the, the glory that only you can receive when the words that you've given to us are read out loud. May they penetrate our hearts through the week. Father, I pray as we look at a scenario today of a very difficult time, a very uh, shattering time in the life of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, that Father, we too would find the great peace that they needed in their time of, uh, uh, of hardship that we would find it too, once and for only in the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, these are familiar words, but may they not be so familiar to us that we don't hear afresh from you today. May your Spirit move me out of the way. May you move whatever it is that's hindering us out of the way, spiritually and otherwise, to hear your word this morning. Not because we're worthy, Father, but because we are needy people, but you are a worthy God. So we pray these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. may be seated. Well, there's a story told about a mother who was gathering to celebrate the birth of her newborn son. And she invited a bunch of lady friends over to celebrate the boy's coming. And they had a great time. They were eating and drinking and celebrating and all these things. And after a while, one lady said, Well, what are you waiting for? Bring the boy out. And the mother went to get the baby from the crib, but he was nowhere to be found. She started to panic and she started to feel fearful until she remembered that she had given the boy to her parents to watch so she could celebrate with her friends. They had been doing so much partying that they had forgotten why they were there in the first place. Doesn't sound too like much about our culture, too different from our culture today, does it? You know, we often ask, is it going to be Santa Claus, or is it going to be a savior? Is it going to be Rudolph the reindeer, or is it going to be about a redeemer? Is it going to be happy holidays or Merry Christmas? Is it going to be jingle bells or is it going to be Jesus? And I think sometimes we have those dichotomies because we feel that strain as well. But the Lord Jesus Christ's birth is the reason for every season, even when we get too busy to recognize why he's not there, so to speak, in the manger, as it were. The Lord Jesus' birth is unlike any other birth that has ever happened in this world. I mean, Think about it for a second. When he was born, he was as old as his father, and he was older than his mother that doesn't happen does it all human history is marked by it in history we used to say that bc meant before christ because it pointed to his death on the cross and everything after that was after his death because his coming is fundamental to the christian faith in fact galatians 6 or 4 4 through 5 will say this it says but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive adoptions as sons. There is no birth in all of history that compares to that of Jesus Christ. Yet he never wrote a book. He never ran a 2024 presidential campaign. He never had a financial problem. But his birth affected history like no other. Poets like Dante and Milton and composers like Hayden and Handel and Beethoven and Bach all did their best work when they focused on making him the center of their lives. And in fact, if you have not had a chance to hear Handel's Messiah, you're missing out. There's a little keynote for you. Go listen to it in the case he's sympathy or otherwise. But all this goes to a head with our big idea today, that Jesus super fulfills and embodies all the expectation all of the prophecy and all the correct teaching of the Old Testament itself. Everything was focused on Him. It was about Him. And that's why I'm so grateful that we have a church that doesn't just go through and study a section and take out a part of the Bible and and, and get life lessons out of it. And those are important. We want principles from Scripture. But we always go back to the fact of asking this question, what does this say about Jesus Christ? What does it say about the gospel? What does it say broadly, even more specifically, about God Himself? But the birth of Jesus guarantees that God keeps his promises. The birth of Jesus is the grace of God coming down to earth, and it tells us that we were in such a bad place that God himself had to come bail us out. And that's what I want to look at today, because Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the tribe of Judah. He's a star out of Jacob. The prophet greater than Moses. He's the king priest we looked at in Hebrews a couple years ago. He's the virgin of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's the babe born in Bethlehem. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to look at seven aspects that he goes through in this time. Before we get there, though, I want to give you the context. Remember, Isaiah is a prophet, he is a very difficult prophet. Not himself, but he's in a very difficult situation. The northern kingdom of Israel is about ready to be taken over by Assyria. They're coming. And you see that in verses 1 and 2. All the peoples of the land are coming to take over Israel, and rightfully so, because they have walked this way away from God. And God tells them, you are going to die. Your families are going to die. But the gloom of verse 1 turns into the rejoicing of verse 3. The distress of verse 1 turns into joy of verse 3. And the oppression of verse 1 turns into the celebration of verses 6 and 7. It's a great reminder to us that when we look around at this world and our lives and we see no clear evidence of God working, He is working. And the greatest work that He had was sending His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we rest our lives on. That's what we rest our families on. So the first thing I want you to see this morning as we look at this great God, is I want you to see his perfect humanity, his perfect humanity. We're just gonna look at verses six and seven and we're gonna focus on that. But I want you to notice that phrase there, for unto us, or your, your Bible might say, for, for to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. And we'll get through to that in just a second. Last week, again, we looked at Isaiah seven fourteen, the prophecy of the, the coming virgin birth. And this child was a birth like no other, Yet it was like a birth like every other. Mary probably carried him to eight or nine months. He came through a birth canal. He cried. It was messy. It was was all the things that come with these things. And Jesus was subjected to grow. Luke 2.42 tells us and reminds us that he grew in the wisdom and stature with men. Jesus got tired. Jesus got sick. Jesus had to eat. Jesus had to drink. Jesus had to wash his hands. And unlike our kids that they don't like, Jesus had to take a bath every now and then too, you know? He just had to be a person. Jesus was unlike any other birth, but he was perfect in his humanity. And I remind you again that because he was born of a virgin, he did not get the sin that came through Adam. But why did he become a man? Why did Jesus have to become a man? Let me just give you a few of these. These are not on the screen, but you can write these down if you like. First, he had to become a man because he's revealing God to us. He's revealing Jesus as God to us. He also had to become a man, not to just reveal God to us, but he had to obey the law on our behalf, did he not? He had to live the perfect life that we could not live because of our sin, and in doing so, to give us his perfect righteousness. He reveals God, he lives the law and obeys it for us, but he also had to die as Christ the man because God could not die who died on the cross? Well, technically, in a sense, God did, but it was not his deity that died. It was his humanity, that perfect humanity. He had to do that. He also had to, number four, he had to save us in order to die because an angel could not do that. Anyone else could not have done it. Only the perfect son of God could take our place. No other being could do that. And finally, the book of Hebrews will tell you this. He had to be our high priest that we might identify with God because of who he is. He became that high priest, that go-between, the mediator, uh, the, the truce-maker, in, in simpler language, between us and God because we were at war with God. And that's why a child had to be born, a son had to be given. Our C.S. Lewis said, and I'll quote him like this in a loose version, Jesus became the Son of Man so that we could become sons and daughters of God. Jesus became the Son of Man so that we could become sons and daughters of God. Jesus was born of a virgin so we could be born again. Jesus was born in this perfect humanity so we might go to heaven. Jesus had to come, though, as a perfect human. And as Isaiah 6 says, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Friends, that perfect timing of everything Jesus gave is exactly how God wanted it to be. There is no Happenstance with God. Everything was ordained as it could be. But you notice that phrase will be given to us. This implies that Jesus pre existed. This implies that Jesus always has been. He didn't just enter the scene when he was born, as some believe. He's always been on the scene before anything else came to be. And I I love that we're studying Genesis at the same time we're going through this because we see that he's once again that uncreated creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first one perfect humanity. I want you to notice number two, not only perfect humanity, but also absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty. He says in verse six, a son will be given to us. And notice what he says about that son. He will have the government on his shoulder. I want you to take note of that for just a second. Notice that it does not say governments, but it says government. There's a lot of governments, plural, in this world. But there's only one who's truly ruler of them all, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The government of Israel rests on his shoulders. He will be the greater son of David, the greater king, verse 7. And he will rule with a rod of iron. Matthew 28, for he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that who? Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. Every king is in his hands. We have a brother in here who loves to quote that that, that book of Proverbs that says, the kings are like waters in his hands. He holds them in his hands. Yes, Putin. Yes, Biden. Yes, whoever else of countries I don't know and names we don't understand, he holds them all in his hands. And Revelation 118, can we slip into Revelation quote (laughs) in Christmas? I have the keys of death and Hades, he said in Revelation 118. No one can enter the grave unless he says so, and no one can leave the grave unless he tells them to. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, Prince of princes, and he's the judge of all judges. What do you have to worry about today? As we come through and look at this, I want you to know that that leaves us with one solution. If he is this God that he says, either we live for his glory or we're living for ourselves, we're merely existing or we are giving him our all. Because if he has it all, if he's in charge, we have nothing to fight him for. We just need to say, yes, sir, and go and do what he's asked us to do. And there is not one square inch in all the galaxies that God has not given authority to his son. Friends, not one of us is free to go our own way. Not one of us here is free to make our own decisions. We should always consult this king of kings, the one whose government and on shoulders all governments actually sit. Isn't that great to know? I am just... I am already done with political stuff, and it hasn't even started. (laughs) Exercise your right to vote, do all those things, but take at the end of the day, honor God with living for his kingdom first, and no matter what happens with these earthly kingdoms here, that's the greatest audience that you want to live to every single time. Psalm 2.4, God sits in the heavens and he laughs He laughs at us down on this earth because he knows he's in charge of it all. What a great God he is. Perfect humanity. You got that, number one? Number two, absolute sovereignty. Let's go to number three. Another descriptor here, and we'll get into the ones you know at this point. He's also this Jesus, this coming one. He is the one of infinite wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor. It is good news that this one who carries the government upon his shoulders, his administration of every detail of this world, knows what is best. In every situation, he's not a dictator who has blind spots and can't see the way to lead human history. He's not one who's invested with complete control of the universe but doesn't know how to bring it to pass. He's not a guy that takes you far enough and says, I don't know, I don't know where to go from here. He's always good. And, and just a note here some of you have the King James, I want to make sure I get this out here. Your Bible may say the phrase, wonderful and counselor. You don't, any of y'all have that there? Some of you may have the wonderful and counselor separated. I, I think the better translation is, you'll see this, is it starts, I'm. Gonna, we're in elementary mode at our, our house, so forgive the English lesson. Many of you know this, but you remember adjectives and nouns? The whole set here starts with an adjective, wonderful, and the noun, counselor, uh, and, and adjective, mighty, and God. Do You see that going back and forth, I think the best translation here is probably wonderful counselor, not wonderful and counselor, but that's my take on it. What does wonderful counselor mean? It means literally exceptional. He's distinguished. There's none like him. There's no comparison game. And what this means is this this infant here that comes, and this infinite wisdom, this infinite infant, infinite infant, is that he is one that has all wisdom. He's one that can tell us where to go, how to find it, and how to be a part of it. We know from Proverbs that's one of the prophecies of the writer of Proverbs, probably Solomon has, is that wisdom would come, Proverbs 8 and 9. And that in that wisdom, that it would be personified in, in a person, it would find fulfillment in one, and that is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11, 2 says, The spirit of the Lord rests upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. The bottom line is this. We must seek him for the direction in our lives. We must seek him for the direction in our lives. And that'll be up on the screen for you as well. There's no other one to whom we can turn To we will have any idea about what to do. We must seek him in our lives. Let us never second guess. Let us never say, God, what are you doing? Let us never second guess his choices for our lives. Friends, that is a great reminder for us Sometimes you look back on your life and you say, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you make a choice and it wasn't a sinful choice. You just made a choice among choices. May I remind you today that his ways are perfect. His plans are perfect. His wisdom is perfect. His timing, his counsel, and his will are all perfect. Many of you are in a life stage where you're making choices. Maybe that's a family choice. Maybe it's an individual choice. Maybe it's a church choice. We don't know. And you're not sure. There's two good options. What what do you do? Well, you pray about it. You seek good counsel. But the first thing you do is you go to the wise one, the wonderful counselor, the exceptional counselor, because he holds it all together. Why would we not seek him? That is the infinite infant. I want you to see number four here, the undiminished deity, the undiminished deity. You see that next descriptor there? I love this one. We all love power and might. He is the mighty God. The baby who will come in human flesh, who will be born among us, he is God himself. I remember staying, uh, working during the tornado of 2003. Many of you longtime Northlanders will remember we had the tornadoes rip through the Northland in May 4th, 2003, as part of the summer cleanup crew at William Jewell College. And there was a man there by the name of Calvin Strotter. Calvin has passed away, and uh, he had a heart condition. He passed away. I don't know if he ever came to Christ, But I remember that summer because he knew I was going into ministry. We were in the same group together. Calvin was a football player. I was a scrawny still back then through. Scrawny, uh, I don't even know what I was at that. I was just scrawny. And I loved Jesus, and I tried to share that, tried to share the gospel with him. I remember sitting in a dorm room, eventually became my room, in Eaton Hall. And we were taking a break in the heat. And Calvin looked at me, and he said, Darren, there's not one instance in the whole Bible where Jesus ever says that he is God alone. And I remember going back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and talking about the mighty God. Friends, the biggest part that we get messed up on is that we forget that God's sovereignty and his deity is all over Jesus Christ. We often, the disciples, struggled to see Jesus as God. They saw him as a human. They lived with him, but we're the opposite effect. We, we struggle to see his humanity, but we emphasize his deity, but we need both. We need both. He is the mighty God. And I want you to know that because his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. No one can hold a candle to the power that he has. And the bottom line is, someone will say, I don't see where Jesus is God. Right here, he calls this one to come, mighty God. Not mighty demigod, Jehovah's Witness or Mormon friends. Not mighty prophet Islam and Muslim friends, but mighty God. He is God himself. And you have to hold that up. He is undiminished deity. Philippians says that he emptied himself, not of being God, but he he took on, as our brother prayed a minute ago, to be a servant for us. He became one person, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that that is the chief cornerstone. The deity of Christ is the chief cornerstone of all Christianity. If you deny that Jesus is God, you have denied exactly who he said that he was going to be. He came to make something out of nothing. He came to make us. And that is what you'll see on the screen. The deity of Christ is the chief cornerstone. Calvin, as far as I know, uh, uh, my co worker at that time, never came to Christ. I pray he did. I, I lost contact after college. But if you have someone in your life who's struggling to see the Old Testament fulfilled and that Jesus is God, this is a verse you take them back to. Mighty implies all power, mighty in the Hebrew implies that he can open a door that no man can close and he can close a door that no one can open. He alone can forgive sins. He alone can raise the dead. He alone has all power and authority to send forth his Holy Spirit in our lives. That is our mighty God, undiminished. Jesus has never ceased to be God. He didn't add on his godhood. He didn't graduate to be God. He's always been God. What an awesome God he is, amen? And that is what we have, and that is what we know. And so our lives should be a time of year where we sing about this, we read about it, we ponder this, because He is mighty God. You know, you would think that most people struggle with Jesus being God, but I'll tell you what the next one a lot of people struggle with is number five. This Jesus is not only a mighty God, He's also a God that's called the eternal Father. He's e- There's eternality with Him. In other words, there are some people who say, well, if this is about Jesus, why does it say Everlasting Father? That seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, don't you believe, Christians, that there's a Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Surely Jesus is not the Son and the Father, right? What's well, that's what a lot of people would like you to believe. But this is a title, not a, uh, it's a descriptor. The better translation would be Father of Eternity, Father of Eternity. Jesus is not the Father, I want to be clear on that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear very clearly that we believe there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are distinct, they are co-equal, co-eternal, but they are distinct. The Son is not the Father. So what does this mean? It's a title given to Jesus, the Father of Eternity. Your Bible may say everlasting Father, your Bible may say eternal Father, but probably the best translation is the Father of Eternity which implies that he's the source and the creator of all eternity. Micah 5.2 says, quote, his goings, from, his goings forth are from days of old, from days of eternity. In other words, Jesus came stepping out of eternity with us. And friends, that's a great application for you because Jesus leads our lives in history with his constant presence. Jesus is always previous to everything in your life. He's not surprised. He's not saying, hmm, what should I do right now with this situation, Father? He doesn't say, maybe we should vote on that again. Our, our spirit, did you throw that crux into world history? Why did you do that? I didn't plan it that way. Or Father, how did we miss this? Our God does not do that. God is always on. God is always on. I remember watching a movie years ago where they gave this guy a pill and he could super focus. He could like read a book in five minutes because he could read so fast and focus. And, and, and it got to the point, the movie went on, where he, he his body started to deteriorate because he was, he was sensing and hyperextending uh, abilities that he had naturally, but to a degree that, that he was not created to do. And the end story was he died a young man because he literally used up everything so quickly. Can you imagine a God who has the ability to hold everything up in this universe without dropping anything, and he does it all the time without any, someone holding up an arm, someone giving him some extra food, someone remembering to put water in the water bowl. Our God holds it all up. He is the eternal father. In other words, he's always out of head of the parade of history and time. He is the father of eternity. He holds it all in his hand. He's not just any baby. He's God himself. And friends, that is good news for you because he is the uncreated creator. And don't you think he knows what's best for your life? Don't you think he knows if he can see all things and he's been there before all things and he'll be there after all things that he knows best? What are you holding back this year to submit your life to him? Because he is the father of all eternity. Let's go to number six. He's not only the father of eternity, but here's the one we all seem to know in this order. He is the prince of peace. Let me line these names up for you in a row just to make sure we're all on the same page. He he alone has perfect counsel, the wonderful counsel for our lives. He is the eternal God that can bring things to pass. He's the mighty God. He's the eternal father, the father of eternity. He speaks with an eternal perspective, and now you get down to the next path. Which is given to us, He is the Prince of Peace, and God will never lead us in a way that does not lead us to peace. And let me just say, if you're not a Christian today, young people, old people, that old phrase is so true: No Jesus, no Jesus, no peace. But if you K N O W, if you know Jesus, if you turn to Him and repent to Him, you can know peace. K N O W, know Jesus, no peace. Know Jesus, no peace. There's a positive and negative aspect to that. Look, the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked. There's no peace that is there. The peace of the world is a peace that will not come to pass, but the peace that is in Christ is a peace that will last. I'll put it to you this way. There will be no peace on this earth until the Prince of Peace returns. This is not a a throw up your hands and don't Don't pray for people around in war-torn countries. This is not a a, a laying down of saying, well, we're just going to kick our feet up and let people ward out. No, it's just a reminder to us that peace is more than just people not fighting. That Hebrew word is one that you know well. Shalom means peace. But it means more than just people not fighting, whether that's families or countries. It literally means for your prosperity, for your well-being, And for your wholeness of life. Look, peace begins in our hearts when we have the tranquility, the serenity, and the calmness that comes from knowing that God is mighty, that He is the wonderful counselor, and He's had all this in eternity. But the ripple effect of that in our lives is that the blessing of His kingdom comes to us in more than just peace. Let me give you an example He gives you peace, but He also takes away your sin. He gives you peace but he also gives you the way to make that sin go away. He gives you peace, but he also gives you good things in this life. He gives you peace, but he also gives you good spiritual blessings in this life. If you're hearing the word of God today, do you realize how blessed you are? How many hundreds of thousands of people have we prayed for with two people groups that have never heard the word? Look, I know church gets boring at times. I know we're not always exciting. Things get routine and we get in ruts. But if you are sitting under the preaching and hearing and reading of God, singing of God's word today, all God's people can say, amen. May not be the song you like, may not be the sermon you like, may not be the pastor sometimes you like, amen. But if you're hearing God's word, that's what it's all about. And that is where it is. And you know, this time of year, they say it's the happiest time of year, but I, I beg to differ statistically. Statistically. Sadly, this is the time of year where more people take their life. This is the most depressing, discouraging, and most sad part of the year for many of you in this room. But I just want to tell you that what the world offers as best at this time of year will, will never fit into your heart the way the Prince of Peace will. Christian, the Bible says you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And when it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what that implies is is that if he is residing within your heart through the Holy Spirit, you have a peace that no one can take away from you, no matter what's happening around you, no matter who's around you, no matter what attitudes are around you. If Christ rules the world, he also can rule your heart, even when no one else wants your heart to be settled. And church, that's a word for us as well, too, because in any transition time of any time of a church, things like this start to happen. Did you hear about that? Oh, I heard he did this. I heard he did that. <coughs> gossip goes out the window when we have the Prince of Peace ruling our hearts and our churches. Does not mean conversations can't happen? Does not mean hard questions can't be happened. We need those things prayerfully, don't we? But may the Prince of Peace rule us as a church now and forevermore, and may gossip stop. May conversations and love cover a multitude of sins. Last thing is this, verse 7. He also, this baby, one of the characteristics he had, the coming Messiah, was an unending reign. Look at verse 7. We often don't talk about this verse, but it's very straightforward. Of the increase of his government. Remember that connects back to verse 6. And of the increase of his government and peace also. Verse 6, there will be no end. On his throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. And those are twins of each other from this time forth and forevermore. May the zeal of the Lord of hosts do this very thing. Look, Jesus is not going to be impeached. Jesus cannot be brought up on Senate charges. Jesus can never be taken out of office. He can't be dethroned. He can't be deposed. He is set in stone. Praise God for that. He's universally sovereign. He's unconditionally sovereign. And there is an increase of his government He will build the church and the gates of hell, Matthew 16 says, will not prevail against it. He puts forth his plans and there's no one who can resist his right arm. He puts forth his wisdom and there's none who can take back his plans. Praise the Lord. On the throne of David, it says, and over his kingdom. What this means is we're not waiting for the second coming of Christ. This one who's reigning, and our brother prayed this before, is your hope today is that he is reigning right now. Sometimes we say, I wish, I can't wait to experience eternal life. If you've been saved on this earth, do you realize that eternal life has already sprung up inside your life? You may not feel like it. You may not see it at times in how you react and what you do or how we as Christians react, but eternal life is now. It's the already and not yet. You already are saved if you're saved, but it's not yet fully glorified. It's not yet fully complete. But what he says is here, At the time of his second coming, there will be a full administration of his reign. He will come back and reign for a thousand years. He will establish his throne and restore what was lost in Genesis 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve. He will rule over a planet and there will be no paradise on which he will be there and not be in charge. Notice that phrase at the end of verse 7. Who's establishing the kingdom? Christ is. It says he will establish it and he will uphold it. Sometimes we can get things moving, but they often fall apart because we get older, we lose strength, but Christ sustains it. Can I just take an aside here for a second? If you're a Christian, this is why you can never lose your salvation. Who established your salvation? God. Who holds your salvation or sustains it? God. So if you're truly a Christian, God will never leave you nor forsake you because he's the one who's always With you. And you see those twins that I mentioned, the justice and the equity. He will always reign with perfect righteousness. He's always doing what is right. And our Lord will reign forevermore. I just want to encourage you as you look around this world as wars rage with Israel and Hamas, as wars rage and going on almost two years with Ukraine and, and Russia, as wars that don't make our Western Uh, American news rage and have raged for years in the Sudan and Ethiopia and Eastern Africa, in Southeast Asia. We can go on and on and on and on. Friends, the only one that we can hold to in these times is the one that fulfilled all the prophecy. And this is not an ostrich burying your head in the sand and forgetting everything, but I do want to just encourage you that God is not caught in surprise. And that every sinner in this world is under his authority and will give an account to him. From Putin, from Vladimir Putin, to the most docile grandma of some town in Missouri we've never heard of, everybody will give an account to Jesus Christ. But if you're in Jesus, you know the one to whom your life has been saved by, through, and to. So today, will you pray with me as we close? I pray just once again, I know these truths are very near and dear to our church, but just like you have to remind sometimes yourself or maybe if you're a parent or grandparent, your child or others in your life, so too I've needed these reminders this week. I pray they've been a blessing for you. Let's go before the Lord and pray and thank Him for who He is. Father, thank You so much that You sent forth Your Son, that He is the one who is the infinite infant. He is the perfect human. He is the, the unmitigated sovereign. Father, we thank you that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. He is the everlasting eternal father, the father of eternity. He holds eternity in his hands. He is also the prince of peace. As, and as verse 7 said, the one with whom everything will be held together and he will reign and is reigning now and has always reigned forever and ever. Father, we pray today what John prayed at the end of Revelation, that may you come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. But Father, until that day comes, there's work for us here to do. There's work in our own lives by your Spirit to fit us for heaven. There's work in the lives of others that need Christ, that we know in those minds and faces in our mind in this moment need to hear the gospel. There's work to be done in our churches. There's work to be done across all this land. But Father, especially these next couple weeks and Indeed, throughout the whole year, may we just bask for a moment once again about how holy you are and how unholy we are. Yet at the fullness of time, you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us, to make us sons and daughters of God. Father, whatever else we may face in this world or in these coming weeks, we hold to that truth that we love because you first loved us. And it's a love that won't let us go. Thank you, Lord. We pray that these truths would always be the bedrock foundation for our lives, our families, and indeed our churches. We ask this today in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen.